Okay, cool. So as I was saying, we'll be camped out today in Titus chapter 3. So if you'd like to flip your Bibles open to Titus 3, I'll tell you guys a story about my dog, Dakota. Uh, he's an Alaskan Malamute. He's a really big, fluffy furball. He's about 95 pounds, and he's got this huge noggin. Uh, and, and he absolutely loves to have the attention that are around people, specifically my mom's, because she doesn't like him very much. But anyway, uh, Dakota will do anything and everything to, to get your attention. He'll come over to you and he'll bop you with his nose, or um, maybe he will uh, kind of paw at you with his feet, or maybe he might rub his big body along your legs so that you start to pay attention to him. Uh, and so we've taught him kind of these basic tricks, my wife Mariah and I have. Uh, we, with the basic of sit, uh, lay down, go, come, and a personal favorite of ours, which is to hug. And so we'll call Dakota over, and he'll sit next to us. We'll tap our leg, and we'll say, hug. And he gets his two big old mittens, and he just wraps them around our legs. And we think it's the cutest thing ever. Exactly. See, I hear some aws. But um, anyway, in those moments, when people come over to our house, we always want to show our friends this trick that our dog does. And so we'll start to call Dakota, and he's running around because all he wants is the attention of the new people in the room. He doesn't really want to listen or to be obedient in those times. And so I'll try to show off these cool dog tricks that I thought I taught my dog, and, and I just look like a terrible dog trainer to all of my friends, and, and I actually am. Uh, but there's, there's other times where he can kind of frustrate me too. I'll let him out to go uh, run around in the backyard or do his business, and uh, when I go to call him back in, this actually happened last night, when I go to call him back in, I'll yell, Dakota, Dakota, come in, and he'll just like sit on this little dirt mound that's on the backyard, and he'll just look at me, and I'll be like, come inside, and he just keeps looking, and I'm like, no, 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 come on, come on, and sometimes he looks at me, and then he walks further back away, and in those times, I get super frustrated, and so I just call Mariah, and I'm like, Mariah, will you just call for your dog because he's not listening, and she'll whistle from literally across the house to the furthest point she could be, and he will run in immediately the second that she says anything. So he loves her much more than he actually loves me. Uh, but anyway, with that, in those moments, I get frustrated because he's disobedient, because he doesn't listen, and, and there's times where, where it just really grinds my gears, and so... Uh, I start to think about, well, why isn't he listening? I, I've had you for two years now. I've trained you up, and now you're acting like the dog that you used to be. You're acting like the dog that wasn't trained by me. And so I get super frustrated. But if we're honest with ourselves, each and every single one of us, don't we sometimes act the same exact way? Aren't there times when we know what we should do, but we decide to do what we want to do? That's not something new in this generation. That's something that's happened for many generations to come. In fact, uh, this letter, Titus is actually dealing with this kind of issue in the church in Crete. And so to give some background before we dig into the text, um, Titus is a disciple of Paul's. Paul is writing this letter to Titus to encourage him because uh, the people in Crete, Crete, by the way, is in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a port city, so people are always coming in and out. And so Titus, to be there as a gospel-centered church planter, and by gospel-centered, I mean someone who has come to know uh, Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come and has saved him, uh, and he has then turned his life around to live a gospel life, pursuing a life with Jesus. 
and so that's what I mean by gospel-centered. I use that term a lot. But anyway, this port city, and he's dealing with all of these things. One of the major things that he's dealing with is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was run by uh, Emperor Nero. Nero uh, hated Christians, was going off and killing Christians left and right, and killing them in some of the most gruesome ways uh, that you've ever seen or heard about. You can Google it. One of the other things that Titus was dealing with was false teachers. They were Jewish men in the churches who were teaching all about Jewish myth rather than teaching about Jesus. And another thing that he was dealing with, he didn't have a lot of strong elder men who were elders in the church or elder women who were slaves to wine and didn't want to uh, pour into the generation under them. In fact, it even stemmed all the way down to the younger men in the church in Crete because those younger men had no self-control. We read all of that in Titus chapter 2. But at the end of Titus chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy and he says, Preach the gospel with all authority and do not be mocked. He says, Don't be mocked and continue to preach the gospel. And that catches us up to uh, Titus chapter 3 Verses 1 and 2, which my first point is that we should be gospel living. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, remember what Titus is dealing with. He's dealing with with a Roman government that's above him, that is persecuting Christians, that is coming after probably some of his friends and killing them. And yet Paul writes to him and says, be submissive to the rulers and authorities. Be obedient. It doesn't make sense to me. Why would he write that? Well, because that's how we should live. As Christians, we should be believers who are submissive and obedient to those who are above us. That's not something new in the text. You've seen it before in the Bible, and that causes tension sometimes. For example, in, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells us that it's right to pay taxes. And then in Romans 13, we're told uh, that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. And then in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we're called to submit ourselves to every human authority. That's not easy. Trust me, I don't like being told what to do, nor do I like losing arguments. Ask my wife. Um, so this is how we are supposed to live. We are to be obedient. We are to submit to the authorities above us, and sometimes that can grind our gears, or sometimes the people above us may not see eye to eye with what we see. And for myself, being a Mexican, these last couple months have been difficult. Of hearing of the stories of where children are being ripped away from their parents and stuffed into cages, and then some of them losing their lives. It's been hard for me to walk through these times, and sometimes my heart fills with anger. Sometimes my heart just has so much anguish and empathy for these families that are being ripped away and being persecuted when they're trying to run to safety or to a better life. But in those moments, I have to look and I have to be peacefully obedient. I have to submit to the authorities above me just because I disagree with, or because I disagree with what they're doing. In those moments, the tension that we face is going to be in our stewardship and in our sacrifice. So a question 
that arises even more from this text is, well, what if my boss tells me to do something illegal? Or what if someone has me or tells me to do something that's outside of what the Bible says? How, how do we respond in those moments? Are we supposed to be obedient and submissive in those moments because it's, it's doing something opposite of what God's will is? In those moments, I'd argue that we actually have to be peacefully disobedient. And we see that example many times in the Bible. Specifically, I'll give you guys a story in Acts chapter 4. This is just after Jesus has ascended. Uh, Peter and John are out proclaiming the good news that Jesus has died for the sins of humans. And and he is raised. And people are coming to faith. People are saying yes to Jesus. And so they're out continuing to spread the gospel. And the Jewish leaders don't like it. And so because of that, they bring Peter and John in, and they say, hey, 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 you guys can't do this anymore. You guys are going to jail. And so while Peter and John are stuck in prison, the Jewish leaders begin to to talk amongst each other to figure out what they're going to do with them. And then when they bring them back to give them their judgment, they say, okay, you're not going to be in jail anymore. You can go free, but you can't preach the name of Jesus. And so this is how they respond in verse 19. They say, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. In this moment, Peter and John are peacefully disobedient because it is outside of God's will to not share the gospel. Now, for us as Americans, I'd like for us to to reflect on uh, maybe a more current or uh, uh, more closer to our age demographic example, which is Martin Luther King Jr. MLK saw that there was an issue with segregation. He knew that there shouldn't be segregation, and so he fought for people to not be segregated, right? And he was peacefully disobedient to the government, And, and while that caused tension and eventually led to his murder... Martin Luther King fought for the gospel. So what about those moments when maybe your teacher, uh, professor, or your boss, or whoever is above you is coming at you and telling you that there's these new rules or there's something else that you have to do different, and you just plain don't like it? Well, in those moments, we We have to be obedient. In those moments, that's not a matter of sin. That's not outside of God's will. We have to be obedient and submissive. It's not about preference. It's about conviction. It's not about what we want to do. It's about what we should do and how we should live. So how do we live that way? How do we actually live by being obedient and submissive in the times that we need to be? In verse 2, Paul continues to tell us what we should do. He says, speak no evil without quarreling, be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy. Now, I'm confessing some sin to you guys here this morning. Uh, I, I don't always do great at that. I like to talk a lot. And so sometimes that leads to me uh, falling into the sin of gossip. Uh, specifically, I'll tell you guys a story. When At my last job, I worked in an office setting. 
there was someone in my office who I, I didn't always see eye to eye with. Our uh, personalities clashed sometimes, and so sometimes I would get really frustrated with either things that they would do or things that they would say. And so I would go into one of the other coworkers' office, I'd shut the door behind me, and I would begin to rant about how, how what they were doing was wrong or what they said was wrong and how I thought what I did or said was better. And in those moments, I was filled with nothing but arrogance and pride. In those moments, I was sinful. In those moments, I wasn't submissive or obedient or kind or gentle, and I was definitely speaking evil. That's not how we should live. Our job is not to be the judge. Our job is to love people well. And we see that in the text here today. And then Paul, Paul says to Timothy, he says, perfect courtesy to all people. Perfect courtesy to all people means the kid in your group project who you can't stand working with. Perfect courtesy to all people means the nasty neighbor who is picky about how you park your car in front of your house. It's about the spouse who sometimes may irritate you. It's also about the pastor who you might disagree with when they make a decision. You don't get to choose who you should love. We are called to love all people. Jesus reminds us of that, but sometimes we're super selective of who we love. I fall into that often. Sometimes I only love the people who I really, really care for, who I hold dear to myself really well, and sometimes the people who I find harder to love, I may not even show any affection towards them. It's frustrating and it's difficult, but that's the life that we should live. And it's not how we naturally operate. We always want to go against it because of our sin. Which brings me to the second point of why should we live out this gospel life? And the second point of the text brings up is to, be, uh, is to remember the gospel that's given to you. So let's read in verses 3 through 6. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's a beautiful passage. Highlight it, underline it, memorize it, sing it. But... Verse 3 catches me off guard because it puts me in a spot to where I have to look back at my life and reflect. Verse 3 reminds me of why I never want to be obedient or why I want to gossip so much because that's who I once was. I was once foolish. I once uh, and still am sometimes foolish. I can tell you that for sure. Uh, but I was hated by others and I also hated others. I didn't show love well at all. And so Paul tells us, remember, it's a healthy spiritual discipline to look back at who you once were. And so my last job in the admission office uh, at the greatest university that Nebraska has to offer, Doan University. I know. 
it's much, much better than the nasty university that sits across this town, Wesleyan. Uh, I went there. Uh, anyway, I was an admissions counselor there at Doan, and my job was to recruit high school students or to help them try and figure out what they wanted in, college, in a university and where they wanted to go. And so uh, specifically, because I'm bilingual, my boss had asked me to meet with the majority, if not all, of the Hispanic families that walk through the doors. And so I, I would go and I'd meet with families and moms. They would tell me uh, of the dreams that they had for their kids. They would tell me uh, of the hardships that they may have been through. They would tell me how they would take a second or maybe even third job to get their kid just to be able to go to their dream school. And one time I remember being on the phone and I was talking to a mother and everything she said was hitting me right in the heart because it reminded me so much of what my mom did for me. And so in that moment, I had to hold back the tears. And after the phone call, I began to cry in my office. I closed the door. Uh, and then as, when I went home, I, I began to cry again. And so I called my mom, and I thanked her for what she'd done and what she'd gone through to, to pay for my education. And, and she said one thing to me uh, that she has said many times, but this specific time it stood out to me. She said, remember where you came from. And she said that so I could also look back at the hardships and the things that she had been through to get me to the point to where I am now able to be, that something changed, something was different. And like that, Paul urges Titus to remind the people in Crete to look back that something is different, and what is different is Jesus Christ. And that's what's different in their lives. And so he says, remind them. And so like Paul reminded Timothy to remind the people in Crete, I get to lovingly remind you of who you were before Jesus Christ. Do you remember the nights where you had to fall into the sin of your addiction of pornography and you couldn't quit looking away at the computer screen? Do you remember the nights when your alcoholic tendencies led you to drive people away who you deeply love do you remember the nights when you were screaming at your spouse because you had no patience or, or even your children where you were taking them and grabbing them because you had no patience, moving them into the other room because you didn't want to listen to them or you didn't want to love them well? Do you remember who you were? Do you remember where your sin led you? But even more so, do you remember Jesus Christ? Do you remember the fact that Jesus took the cross for you? Do you remember how the father had to look on his one and only son and turn away from him so that he could die for your sake? Do you remember how Jesus got on his hands and knees to wash your feet? Or how he was then nailed to the cross by the wrists and feet and bled and murdered for your sake? Do you remember Jesus? Because City Light, you don't deserve to be here. None of us do. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us, not you. There's nothing you could ever do to earn your way into heaven. You can't do enough good things 
Everything good that you've done before Jesus Christ is nothing but filthy rags to him. You can never earn your way to salvation. But Jesus, being rich in mercy, took the form of a young infant to come into this world. We just celebrated four weeks of how beautiful it is that Jesus Christ came and he saved us. And now we get to continue to worship and give him all praise and all glory because of what he has done and how he continues to change our lives and work in our lives. The text is clear in it, is clear on it. You cannot earn your way to heaven, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Verse 5, don't you get it? Nothing you can do will earn your way there. It doesn't matter how nice you are to the person you don't like. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the homeless person on the side of the streets. It doesn't matter how kind and hardworking you are for your boss. Nothing matters but Jesus. He came for you, and because he resurrected, you can run to him with his arms wide open, waiting for you. And let me remind you, he appeared to you, you did not appear to him. He came for you, you did not run to him. Because you were so far from him, yet he still showed you grace and mercy. The text uses this language that we are regenerated and renewed by the Spirit. This idea of being regenerated or renewed, it can also mean to be reborn or transformed. The Spirit of God living in us after we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are reborn because of how the Spirit of God transforms us, because of how the Spirit of God changes and moves in us. And then it uses this language that it's not just dripped over us, but the Spirit of God is poured over you. You don't just have a tiny bit of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have the entire Holy Spirit from God that rose Jesus from the dead dwelling inside of you if you believe in Jesus Christ. Love and mercy has been given to you. Which leads me to the final point. That because of the rich mercy, because of the gospel, because Jesus died for us, we should live by it and we should be driven by the gospel. Our faith is in Christ, not in ourselves. The gospel given to us is what we believe, but that's not where it stops Belief leads to action. Belief precedes action. The gospel given to us leads us to lead a gospel-driven life. Verses 7 and 8. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The text says that we are justified. To be justified is to be made right before God. 
that we are now wiped clean of all of our sin because Jesus Christ died for us, because the blood that was needed to be shed was shed. God declares you clean and righteous when you place your faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians says it in a beautiful way, 5.21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on the sin that was yours so that you could take on the righteousness that is rightfully his. You are declared right before God because Jesus paid the price for you. For your sake, he took the cross so that you would be made righteous. Now, if you're maybe sitting in these seats and you're wondering to yourself or you're pondering, I, I don't think that God for, could forgive me for all the bad things that I've done. I've done too much wrong in my life. Or maybe God won't forgive me for the one thing that I did that one time. Let me remind you of who God is. He spoke this world into existence. He breathed life into humankind. And we sang it just for this, that the very breath that resides in your lungs right now is there because of him. Because he has given that to you. And you don't think that he can forgive you. Those are lies from the enemy. Do not believe those. He is the creator of existence. And he can forgive any and all sin. That's what grace is. Getting more and more than what you deserve. Over and over again. And because of his grace, you can become an heir to all the things that are offered to us after becoming his children. And I'm pleading with you that if that's you, if you're in the middle of believing those lies, look on the cross. Jesus died for you. He can forgive you. And with being heirs, we get an inheritance. In 1 Peter 1, 4, it tells us that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. If you're like me, and you had to look up the definition of the word imperishable, because you don't have a good vocabulary, I'll tell you what it means. It means that nothing can tarnish or extinguish the inheritance that we have by Jesus Christ. You can hold confident to the fact that Jesus died for you. You can hold confident to the fact that you get eternal peace and eternal rest with God because of the grace that was given to us, because of the love that was lavished and poured over us, because Jesus died for us. This is how we respond. Paul says to insist on these things. And when he says insist on these things, he takes us back to verses 1 and 2. He says, be obedient, be ready for a good work, uh, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Our belief in Jesus should drive us to look like him. Evidence of gospel belief is gospel behavior. Evidence of gospel belief is gospel behavior. I didn't come up with that, so put some quotes around it. Jesus resembled all of these qualities. And as followers of Christ, we should try and strive 
to look more and more like him. In fact, it's actually God's will for you to look holy and be holy like he is. He says it multiple times in Leviticus. He says it again in 1 Thessalonians. Then he says it in Hebrews. And then he says it again in 1 Peter. Be holy for he is holy. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. He says, true salvation brings with it a desire to be made holy. To forsake godliness is to despise the death of Jesus. To not want to look like Jesus or resemble who he is is to look upon the cross and spit on him. Earlier in the passage, it tells us that we are regenerated and renewed, and we covered that a little bit, but that's not just for our actions. It's also for our attitude. You should hate your sin. You should want to sin no more. In fact, Jesus tells people multiple times in the Gospels, he says, go and sin no more. You should despise your sin. And if you don't, I don't know how you could look at the love and the grace and the mercy that Jesus has poured over us by his death and not want to resemble him. I have a friend whose name is Remington. Remington and I met my freshman year of college. Uh, we were on the track team together and we had a class or two together. Uh, Remington was the hardest working kid I've probably ever met. Four out of five times he was probably puking after a, a workout because he worked so hard. And then you would go and you'd have a conversation with Remington and uh, you would just feel the sense uh, of peace, of love, of joy, of gentleness from the conversation you just had. And, and almost never did he talk about himself. In fact, to this day, I really don't know a lot about Remington. Remington wore this really cool cross around his neck. Uh, it was two bullet casings that he put together somehow, and then he drilled a hole through the top of it, and he just tied a regular old string around it and wore it loud and proud every day, even at trek meets. It would run and hit up his head, and he didn't care. Remington died shortly after my sophomore year of college. Remington was gospel driven. I used to look back at Remington and I used to wonder, why are you so different? How can you be this way? How can you not hate people? And that was before I was a believer. But now as a believer, I can look back at Remington's life and I can give glory to God because of what he did in Remington's life. Remington wasn't a nice guy or a gentle spirit because he wanted people to talk about how nice or a fun or, or hardworking kid. He did it because Jesus entered his life and Jesus transformed him. The Spirit of God moved in his life. You should look different to people. As believers, people should wonder why we're so different. Your neighbors should notice that you're not like the rest of the neighbors. Your coworkers should be excited when you come into work, and your boss should know that you're going to be one of the most hard-working, dedicated, non-complaining people in the office or wherever your workplace is. Why should we look different? Because we should be driven by the gospel. In Philippians 2, verses 12 through 15, it tells us that, that we should be a light to the world. 
We should look different to the world. People should wonder why we're so weird. In verse 8, it says to, to be careful. In the Greek, the term be careful means to be out in front of. One pastor put it this way, that you were if, a, if you were a shop owner, that you would be out at your front door on the street, yelling at people, calling people in, telling them what you have to offer so that they would come see and take of what you had. My hope for us as believers is that we would be out on the streets, that we would be living a gospel-centered life, that the gospel would drive us forward so that people would look at us and know that we're different so that you would be uh, just a radiance of God's love and light for people, that they would wonder why you're so different so you can then invite them to drink from the well of life. You should look different to people. So my question for you to ponder on if you had to transfer schools, would the classroom feel a weight of you being gone? If you got a new job, would they feel a loss of grace in the office? If you moved neighborhoods, would your neighbors feel a loss of love? And maybe you're sitting here and you're wondering, Man, I'm a believer, but I don't think that's what my life looks like. Can we be honest for a second? I'm not asking if you're a nice person. I'm not asking if you do good things. What I'm asking is your life driven by the gospel. Have you truly looked at what Jesus did for you and actually responded? Or are you maybe just simply coming and playing church every Sunday? Or you may be simply just doing this out of habit because it's what you've always done. Maybe you come and you listen to a couple songs and you hear a message and that's it for the rest of your week. Sometimes, I'll be honest, I can get caught up in it too. But Jesus didn't just come for our Sunday mornings. One pastor, he puts it this way. He says, church is the lamest hobby that you could ever have. I agree with him. Jesus didn't come for Sunday mornings. He came for your entire life. So what if you lived out this gospel-driven life outside of this building? What if outside of Sunday mornings at the coffee shop, people looked at you and knew that you were different? What if when you were in the midst of getting caught up in sin, the Holy Spirit spoke to you and you realized where you were getting stuck or where you were heading? What if in those moments you turned to Jesus? People will look at you differently. My best friend Lance, when I first met him, within the first couple of weeks, I knew there was something different about him. So I began to ask him questions and I began to poke and prod into his life and he would share the gospel with me. And because of that, I now get to stand before you saved as a believer in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're sitting in this room and you don't believe in Jesus. 
and you think that you can do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. Stop it. Because you can't. We covered that already. Mariah and I have been watching uh, this show on Netflix. It's called The Good Place. Spoiler alert coming. In this show, the main character, she realizes that she's not supposed to be in the good place. And so she starts to ask all of the people around her how to be good, how she can earn more points as they do on the show so that she can stay in the good place before they kick her to the bad place. You can't earn enough points. But Jesus did. Jesus came and he died for you. All you have to do is take it. So my challenge for you in the room, if that's you, come to the cross. He's waiting for you. You're not in this room by accident. He is pursuing you. Let us pray.